2: Available front-row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're exploring the seacoast of Maine with Chef Mike Wiley. We dig into clam bakes, his favorite often ignored fish, and why store-bought ketchup is really better than homemade.
3: Andrew Arlen and I have always wanted to run restaurants where pretty much everything is done from scratch, except Heinz 57 ketchup, which nobody should mess with.
2: Also coming up, we find a fix for flavorless tomatoes. And later, Dan Pashman explains why he thinks grilling has gotten gimmicky. But first, it's my interview with poet and chef Omar Tate. Omar, welcome to Milk Street.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's
2: great to have you. Um, Let's talk about your pop-up dinners uh, called Honeysuckle. Could you just describe, uh, you know, what you serve and what the pop-ups are like?
4: So Honeysuckle, it's, it's a concept that uses food as the nucleus to explore various ideas of the nuances of, of blackness in America specifically. And I say America specifically because black people in this country have quite, quite, quite the hurdle in our search for identity and that many of us can't trace back our heritage more than two grandparents ago. And what what tends to happen, at least in my experience as a black person in this country, is that people will ask me, hey, where are you from? What is your nationality? But if I tell them that I'm just a black person from Philadelphia and that I'm American, that's kind of where the conversation stops. You know, Africans and West Indians have a heritage. They have a flag, Michael Twitty talks a lot about having a flag in his book, The Cooking Gene. And having a flag, like if you point towards the, the flag of Jamaica, what do you think of food-wise? You think of oxtail, you think of rice and peas. When you tell someone that you're an African-American, most people only ever associate that with pain and then stereotypes under the American flag. So Honeysuckle to me is me generating a flag for myself it's not. It's not just pain. Pain is. Pain is always there, but um, there were plenty of joys as well.
2: You write poetry, and um, you wrote a poem called "Folgers," which um, I have read 15 times since I <laughs> saw it. Could you just read that? Because I, I, I'm not going to read your poem. You're going to have to read your own poem.
4: <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, Folgers. Folgers is a. It, it's one of my favorite ones. I don't write love poems. Uh, poems often but um can we have coffee i mean like really have it can we put down our words and swaddle our breaths in hints of cocoa cinnamon and clove can i stare into your brown eyes while the dew of god washes over your face by our window next to the eucalyptus the stir of spoons coursing in our hearts just black don't need no sugar neither only you in silk from midriff to toes frizzed baby hairs and a t-shirt that now belongs to us can we have it till it's done? Can we fill our empty cans of coffee bean with the grease that will fry our chicken forever? It's fabulous. Um, I'm really, I'm really glad that you like that poem.
2: Could you just um, explain a little bit about it?
4: Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if you remember the commercial. The best part of waking up is, is Folgers in your cup, um, and for people who are in a relationship, the person that you love. Is the best part of waking up when you when you wake up and you you, you see that person next to you, um, and so in, the, in this in this poem the car the coffee the stimuli is is my partner.
2: You've had a very successful career. Uh, you ended up doing these pop ups, uh, something you really believed in. Now you're essentially back home in Philadelphia. You say. There isn't much in my room but a mattress, a leaning bookshelf, and a eucalyptus plant that I found in a public flower pot. It's blue-gray and brings me joy when the days are down. So uh, what happens next?
4: You know, I wrote that, and I know it sounds really somber. Um, I think the the, the somberness comes from everything coming to a screeching halt. There was a huge full stop at around March 15th when, when I moved back to Philadelphia. But all the things that I was doing prior to this pandemic, it was all leading me back to Philadelphia. And so I'm, at the, I'm in the place where I'm supposed to be. What's next is what I want to do is open Honeysuckle Here. Uh, the, the art that I do create speaks to the African-American community. And I would like to spread that over several different avenues, such as like a, a grocer, a coffee space, um, and still do dinners. But have it be a community center. The idea in the past was to open honeysuckle downtown, but uh what I want to do now is bring downtown to the hood like that's that, I would love to see the economy spread outward into the hands into the pockets of those who need it.
2: If you look forward five or ten years and take a best case scenario, what would you like to see happen as a result of what we're going through now? what would be the best case for you in terms of community or the way people think about food and culture?
4: Um, Restaurants were never about food. And I think that people don't understand that. Restaurants were always about people, people first that needed food. So if we can start looking at that again, everything else will fall into place. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who owns – The restaurant here is Safalee Barbacoa. And we were talking about how most restaurants exist in the way that restaurants are existing now during the pandemic. They've already existed like that. If you go to a small mom and pop restaurant, in most cases, there are only a few tables, not many tables. And they're far apart. There's counter service. People are already wearing gloves. There's sneeze guards. The food is typically served out of like steamers or buffet tables kept hot above 140 degrees. And there's minimal hand-to-hand contact. There's barely a server. And it's really only when you get to the honestly arrogance of fine dining where all these exchanges are happening, where there's a server and there's crumb in your table and wine glasses all over the place. And uh, the solutions for hmm. for the future already exist we just have to pay attention to the people that we weren't paying attention to because they have they've been had the answers
2: Omar it's been just a a great pleasure having you on a chef a poet uh, a man who knows history and literature Um, thank you so much
4: thank you thank you Chris I, I really appreciate it
2: that was Omar Tate the chef and poet behind Honeysuckle it's time to take some of your calls with my co-host Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of Home Cooking One Hundred and One. First, I have a question for you. Yes. When you bake, do you have all sorts of different kinds of like French-style bakery pans and different sizes and different lengths, individual tartlets, or you stick to like the basic American pie?
5: I am so basic. You know, I, I feel like either you're a cooker or a baker, and mainly I'm a cooker, so I don't have a huge battery of baking equipment. I have what I need. And so you're right. Just the basic America stuff.
2: Sarah, I'm so, so, so down to earth. Okay. okay. Time to take some calls.
5: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
6: Hi, my name's Michael from Chico, California.
5: Hi, Michael. How can we help you today?
6: I uh, had a question. I was making some pasta with my daughter and I wanted to throw some mozzarella in it, some fresh mozzarella I had in the fridge. And I've done this before and I had the same problem where instead of getting all melty and delicious like I was expecting, it kind of got all gummy and lost its moisture and it was good mozzarella and it turned into bad mozzarella. And I was wondering how could I make it more melty
5: instead
6: of... Gummy.
5: Gummy, yeah. First of all, so you said it was fresh mozzarella? It was. And so it was full fat?
6: Correct.
2: When you say fresh, it was packed in water or brine? How did it come?
6: It was packed in, yeah, in water. Okay. Yeah, you know, like the nice soft. It was delicious before I put it in the pasta, and then it just lost it all.
5: Tell me what else was in the pasta and what kind of heat you had.
6: I think I had some... Sun-dried tomatoes and some basil and olive oil and pasta. It was all finished. I put it in right at the end.
5: There was no liquid?
6: No, it might have been a little bit moist just from being pasta. But, yeah, no, other than olive oil.
5: Well, I sort of think you were asking it to do something it can't really do, Mm -hmm. you know, which is to just melt down into, like, a cheesy melted stuff. Was it grated or was it cubed or what was it?
6: It was just cubed.
5: Pretty small cubes?
6: decent size cubes, maybe like the size of a small olive or something.
5: Well, what I would recommend, we used to make this recipe at Gourmet, tomato mozzarella basil pasta in the summer. We would put, you know, the tomatoes and really good olive oil and maybe a little bit of vinegar or lemon juice on top of the tomatoes, lots of salt, let it sit you know, to sort of create a juice. And then we shred a bunch of basil, and then we'd put little tiny cubes of mozzarella in with the tomatoes. Mm. And then we just dump okay. the pasta on top, just stir it up, and you'd get little pockets of melted cheese, but it wouldn't turn into a sauce, which is what I think you're regretting. You were looking for a sauce. I've
2: been making that recipe for years. Did I get it from gourmet? <laughs> you may have. I may have stolen it from you. I wasn't necessarily looking for a sauce. I was looking for little
6: bits of the melted cheese, but the problem was that it got gummy. Like, it lost all its moisture and just got, like, kind of... Chewy, like leftover gum.
2: Well, Ew. I have a suggestion. Use burrata.
5: Yes, because the Cause middle of burrata is it's, cream. It's cream
2: inside. That'll give you a creamy sauce. That's, yeah, and you can the, get that anywhere. The, the
5: butterfat content in yeah. the cream center will keep the whole thing together.
2: You should do two things. You should do this completely off heat. Put all the ingredients in a bowl and then drain the pasta and then put it in the bowl. You should also reserve right. some of the pasta cooking pasta water. Pasta cooking liquid, yeah. Reserve a cup. And just add a little bit of the time. That, that'll make it. And that yeah. will help create a sauce so the pasta is not wicking up extra moisture. And also, that hot water will tend to help melt the cheese a little yeah. bit. And that'll do it.
5: All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you.
2: Boy, I, now I'm hungry. That's a great recipe. <laughs> really, it's great in summer.
5: Yeah, that tomato mozzarella basil. Mike, thanks for calling. All right. Thank you guys. Take care. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. Bye bye.
2: I used to make, that's my standard August, I'd make that every week.
5: So good. Well, it's so simple. Did you just do basil or did you add other herbs? No.
2: I had basil in the garden. I had tomatoes in the garden. Yeah. So I had mozzarella not in the garden.
5: Yeah. So good. (laughs) So simple. Okay. Yes. Next call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
7: This is Gary Gold uh, from California.
5: Hi, Gary. How can we help you?
7: So the question I have is I'm gluten intolerant and I'm looking for some basic recipes that would use nut butter or nut flour and specifically either cashews or pecan or almonds. And I'd like to know whether it's better to just ground it to a flour state or to take it all the way to a butter. And then a second part of the question would be if I want to use chocolate as a flavor, would you recommend using cocoa or chocolate chips?
5: You want to use this in what kind of recipe? A sweet recipe, it sounds like.
7: Uh, Either a cake or a brownie recipe. As a foundation, whether I could use a butter, a nut butter, or a flour as a substitute for an all-purpose
5: flour. Well, not as a direct substitute. I think what you're looking at is a flour. And so for people who don't know, you know, when you say almond flour, it's just finely ground almonds. And it sort of depends on the recipe. But I think a butter would be too dense. However, a butter, say, in a brownie might work. But you'd still have to add the eggs and leaven it.
7: In terms of leavening agents, would you recommend the baking soda or powder or
5: both? Baking soda you add when there's acid in the recipe as well because it reacts with the acid. And baking powder, you know, will just do its thing anyway. Um, And sometimes they're used in a combination depending on what else is in the recipe. Chris, do you want to weigh in here?
2: I agree with all that. I I would say, first of all, you can't substitute a nut butter for nut flour. That is totally different. Almond flour, it seems to me, is the most useful of all of those. Uh, It's easy to find in supermarkets. Keep it refrigerated. It'll go bad quickly. But what I would do is not go down the substitution route. There are plenty of cakes which don't use wheat flour. They use a nut flour. Nut flour. So go seek out those recipes, and they're not substitutes. They just are great recipes that don't use wheat flour. And I think almond flour is really the one to go with. For substituting wheat flour, you can buy commercial gluten-free flours. They use white rice flour, brown rice flour, corn starch, or potato starch. They have some other things in them, and they do a pretty good job. But i go find a recipe that's engineered from the start for a okay. nut flour.
7: And in terms of the chocolate flavor, would you recommend a chocolate or cocoa powder or a combination?
2: Chocolate chips tend to have other things in them, so they keep their shape, you know, when they're baked. Yes. So those are not going to be any good. Uh, cocoa powder is usually the best way to make a chocolate cake. It doesn't have intense chocolate flavor. That's why a lot of cakes use melted chocolate and a cocoa combo. powder. A combo, yeah. But you can't figure this out on your own. You really have to go to a recipe. Oh, great. Because okay. it's so tricky and the pH of the batter and this and that and the other thing. I mean, chocolate is uh, slightly acidic and there's a whole bunch of other issues. And cocoa powder tends to be alkaline, which is not acidic. So we have a steamed chocolate cake. You make it in a pot on top of the stove. It's one of my favorite chocolate cakes and it just uses cocoa powder, does not use chocolate.
5: But how about, does it use flour or does it use almond? Yeah,
2: it uses flour. But you could probably convert that with almond flour.
7: Oh, great. Thank you so much, Chris and I really appreciate your
2: help. Yeah, Thank you. you're, you're in good shape now. Yeah. Thanks. Okay,
5: All right. So Bye-bye.
2: This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, please give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
5: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
8: This is Jason from South Georgia.
5: Hi, Jason from South Georgia. How can we help you today?
8: Got a question for you about some dipping sauces for chicken tenders. So we have some big chain restaurants in South Georgia that do all kinds of chicken dinners with chicken tenders with dipping sauces like mayonnaise and ketchup and Worcestershire black pepper garlic that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and so we've made some of those here at home and stuff and just trying to get some, uh, some different ideas on some uh, dipping sauces, not some of the normal ranch and honey mustard but some of the stuff that i don't know i just figured i'd ask you guys to see if you thought of anything unique along those lines
5: do you want to keep it sort of southern or do you care where you go with it what sounds exciting here
8: any direction sounds cool i've played around with ponzu and mixed it with mayonnaise and that sort of thing i've taken dill pickles and blended them up and mayonnaise, and that's sort of like a tartar sauce sort of thing, which not really interested, but done that. And uh, I've got some tahini, and I've played around with tahini a, a little bit with yogurt. I'm open to anything.
5: Well, there's so many different directions you could go. I love mayonnaise, so I use it as a base for so many different sauces.
8: So let's take mayonnaise off the table. What if we're talking... Kids and teenagers. I have an 11-year-old and I have a 17- and a 15-year-old. And let's say it's no mayonnaise. You can go any kind of uh, cuisine you want to go in, but something different, unique, you think that would still not be too, like, crazy hot, spicy, or too funky for them, but something they could still enjoy.
5: All right. I have the best peanut sesame sauce ever. It's jar of peanut butter you throw into a food processor with some hoisin, and this is the secret ingredient, scallions. Oh. You put scallions, you chop the scallions up, you know, white and green part, throw it in with the peanut butter and the hoisin, and then just a tiny bit of sesame oil, the toasted stuff, because a little goes a long way, it can overpower some lemon juice and some water because it sort of seizes up. You need to, you know, um, water it down a bit. And then a tiny bit of Tabasco, which balances the sweetness in the, you know, peanut butter Mm. and also in the hoisin. Hoisin's somewhat sweet. And, hey, you could throw in some garlic too. This is the kind of thing you would toss with noodles for, like, sesame noodles. This sauce would work for that too. Wow, that sounds great.
2: Uh, Asian sauces in general. There's some really simple ones like soy sauce mirroring a little sugar, Fish sauce, lime juice, a little bit of sugar. I mean, if you use a good fish sauce, your kids won't know it's fish sauce. You know, white vinegar, sugar, and chopped up chilies. Those are just very thin sauces that you could use as a dipping sauce, and they all have three ingredients. That you could al- make.
5: also do like some restaurants do and have a marinara dipping sauce, you know, just to take it in a different route that kids might like.
9: Okay. Wow.
2: <laughs> it's well, either that, really it's
9: that that <laughs> was either
2: more than you wanted or a lot less. We, we, it's, or, it's one or the other. So anyway, anyway hope, hope that was helpful, Jason. Yes. It sure was. Thanks, okay. guys. I appreciate you so sure. much. Okay. Take care.
5: Thanks, Jason. Bye-bye. bye
2: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're digging into the world of seafood with Chef Mike Wiley. That and more in just a moment.
10: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you.
5: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company,
1: Portland, Maine.
2: This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Mike Wiley. He's chef and author of the new cookbook, Eventide, recipes for clam bakes, oysters, lobster rolls, and more from a modern Maine seafood shack. Mike, welcome to Moat Street.
10: Thank you. It's great to be here.
2: Uh, it's nice to chat with you again. We chatted uh, on the television show not too long ago. Um, so you're chef owner of Eventide, Hugo's, and the Honey Pot in Portland, Maine. But here's my question. You went to Colby College, got a bachelor's in creative writing and religious studies, and then you got a master's in rhetoric. I didn't even know you could get a master's in rhetoric at the University of Colorado. So what was that path like?
3: Well, I was always pretty bookish and kind of just good at school. My father, retired now, was an anesthesiologist, and my mother was a college professor. So being a good student was always a part of being a good son in my parents' house. Um, And I, you know, I've always been kind of a blowhard and enjoyed the sound of my own voice. Thank you again for having me on. <laughs> um, and I always thought kind of in the back of my mind that, yeah, if nothing else, you know, I could go to a monastery or I could go to an academic monastery and just become a professor. So I went out west and ski bummed around. And that is what really introduced me to cooking. And um, that is where the hook got set on the idea of cooking professionally. But there was one last throw of kind of white-collar ambition, I suppose you could call it. So I applied to grad school when I was living out in Crested Butte, Colorado, just skiing my brains out, rock climbing a lot. And uh, it was a two-year program, and I thought, I'll give this a whirl. And and I can confidently say that I do not want to work in higher education now.
2: <laughs> so you show up in Portland, to Hugo's, a restaurant you now own. And you said, quote, I was wearing a ridiculous Nepali-made yak sweater. So you didn't really look the part, I would guess.
3: No, no, I didn't. And that was made dramatically clear by my uh, my business partner and uh, the previous owner of the restaurant, uh, James Beard, award-winning chef and total badass Rob Evans. Um, I guess I wore the yak sweater a week before I came in for a working interview. Uh, I was still living in Colorado and I started trawling Maine's Craigslist for job postings, having gone to college in Maine and being born in Maine and sort of, I don't know. The people in the West are just so gregarious. I always found myself wondering, are you trying to sell me a vacuum cleaner or something? What's what's this interaction all about? So I noticed a job post for, uh, they, they may have used the word Poissonnier or fish cook, something like that. <laughs> I thought, oh, ooh-la-la. La. And I'd been following Rob and uh, the really, really incredible food he'd been doing at Hugo's for uh, for years. And I thought, wow, this could be an opportunity to live in a city that I love and, and uh, really learn some cutting-edge techniques. But um, yeah, I wore that sweater to dinner, and I walked up to the bar where then chef de cuisine Andrew Taylor and uh, chef owner Rob Evans were having a glass of wine uh, after their service. And I just said, chefs, thank you so much. The meal was incredible. I pr- really appreciate the opportunity for the stage. And I walked away from the bar and uh, Andrew later confided in me that he turned to Rob and he said, can you picture that guy ever working here? And <laughs> uh, Rob, I think, you know, made some scornful comment like, oh, absolutely not. But I'll be I'll be the first to point out that I did quite well on my stage. And Andrew and I have gotten along famously ever since.
2: And you guys uh, won Best James Beard Award for Best Chef, right?
3: We sure did, yes sir.
2: Yeah. So Eventide is an odd combination, if I can say so. It's sort of a you know clam shack, seafood shack, lobster roll, fried oyster roll, uh, fried fish sandwich, and then you have crudo, and you have this amazing nori vinaigrette in your salad. It's a mix of two very different things, uh, or, or maybe you don't feel that's true. I
3: would say you're right on the money, Chris. I think it's it's an interesting beast from you know a creativity standpoint. You know, when we're talking about food, Andrew and I will frequently talk about doing the highbrow, lowbrow thing and talking through the eventide menu. You know, one station prepares very kind of fussily plated um, crudos with, you know, tweezers and, you know, tangles of herbs and delicate little garnishes and textural elements. And then the hot station is like pumping out chowders and brown lobster rolls. But we wanted to make sure that we had something that was going to really be reflective of blue collar, simple homespun New England cuisine, and something that would play to maybe more of a a metropolitan kind of food trend savvy audience.
2: Let's talk about oysters. I, I, I am biased, but I assume you're really biased towards the coldest, most northern waters. Uh, what's your view of oysters you like, oysters you don't like, what to look for, et cetera?
3: Um, it's funny. I think that your perspective on it definitely changes. I feel like there's kind of a democratizing effect after you see you know, I don't know how many million oysters we've served at Eventide, but it's just bananas. It's like, it feels like a war during the summertime. Um, but I think, you know, what what's always been and continues to be important to me is uh, I really like seeing um, oysters that, you know, come out of really cold water, as you indicated, that are really briny and have something going on texturally. I don't particularly like eating oysters where there's not much actual oyster in the shell. I think that there should be that that moment of, you know, some people just like to knock them back like somebody at the bar doing shots. But I like a little bit of a chew to the oyster. And that, that salinity to me is really the most interesting thing.
2: So help me out about shucking an oyster. Many, many years ago, uh, Julia Child came up behind me with a big service tray of oysters and asked me to shuck them. Oh boy. Made a complete utter fool of myself. So I have been given instructions, but do you have a method for doing it that will uh, improve my, (laughs) my performance? I would say
3: of all the chefs at Eventide and among my business partners, I am the worst oyster shucker among us. And by that I, I mostly I'm the slowest. You know, what works best for me is having plenty of dry towels close to hand, wrap the oyster in a towel and think about what would happen if you were to just miss a little bit and try to guess like, where's that relatively dull blade going to end up? Hmm. Because oyster shucking at the end of the day is just a little dangerous and there's no, no need to be a hero here wrap your hand in towels, wrap the oyster in towels. Um, I really recommend the stability of a surface, like belt buckle level. You want it a little lower than you'd want like an ideal cutting board height. So you can kind of put your weight down on the oyster, brace it really well. You need to use a lot more body tension than you think. I think that's when you see people really getting themselves badly with an oyster knife. I think it's because they're not, you know, kind of using their core a little bit. Uh, it's not just something that you can you know, leave to your arms and, and hope it's going to go well.
2: So I know the answer. If I ask you to define a clam bake, you're going to tell me it's whatever you want to put in it, right? Because you, you know you're going to get in trouble if, yeah, if you're too specific. So, so just go through the, the, the likes and dislikes, depending upon where you might be in New England for a clam bake.
3: Andrew Taylor really brought the clam bake into my world. His family's got this beautiful uh, little cabin up on uh, Mount Desert Island, which is actually the namesake of Eventide Oyster Company. Um, It's been in their family for years. It's right on the water. And basically the way they do the kind of down-east clam bake is put a little bit of water, a little bit of seawater, at the bottom of this huge sheet tray with handles, find some rocks you can balance it on and build a fire underneath. Once your water's simmering, then you can start grabbing seaweed. You layer the seaweed on there, and then basically you're going to make a parfait of, chiefly, I think you're definitely going to want mussels. You're going to want uh, steamers, uh, lobster, uh, probably some par-cooked potatoes, either salt pork or some chunks of slab bacon. And yeah, we like to put red hot um, Those bright red hot dogs in them because we think it's kind of funny. And then uh, a little trick, um, kind of an old-timers trick, is throw um, uh, a raw egg in its shell right at the top of this pile of seaweed. I
2: think you said in your book that the egg is there to tell you when the clam bake is ready.
3: Yeah, exactly. It puts a whole new meaning on an uh, egg timer. And the idea behind it is that... You generate steam, and you're you're cooking this whole system. It's basically like a clam steam, but that doesn't really have much of a ring to it, so we never use that phrase. But you're just steaming everything in this big pile of seaweed. And the seaweed flavor is incredible. Like, the bacon that comes out of it is absolutely fantastic. It really changes the flavor of the potato pretty dramatically. And the way we approximate it at the restaurant is we make a kind of more manicured arrangement of shellfish on a bed of rockweed in an Asian steamer basket. And we simply steam it and bring it out to to the customers with some nori vinaigrette and some drawn butter.
2: You love mackerel. Most people don't. And you have a pickled mackerel recipe in your book. So sell me a mackerel.
3: Oh, Christopher. Well, I mean, where to start? Let's start with the fact that it's it's just delicious. And incredibly good for you and so easy to prepare. Um, That pickle method that we use in the book is sort of an old eventide standby. Pretty much anybody could take that recipe and have just absolutely jaw-dropping outstanding results.
2: Could could you just, just summarize that recipe for us quickly?
3: Sure. So we lightly salt the mackerel fillets. We then bury them in a uh, very Japanese pickle brine. So rice, wine, vinegar, sugar. You know, if you're feeling saucy mirin or sake, you let it sit for about 20 minutes and then you pull the mackerel out and the acid has done its work on the fish just enough. It helps to sort of balance the fish in terms of flavor. But most importantly, it separates this membrane that's on the mackerel skin and uh, you peel that off and then you slice it up, and it's great on bread. You can make like a little smore abroad with it. You could, uh, you know, serve it as part of uh, almost like a, a charcuterie spread or something. It would be great next to a cheese board. Um, so that's really one of my favorite ways to, to prepare mackerel.
2: So now what? I mean, you have even tied Hugo's is quite different. It's much more upscale. The Honey Pot is more international. Um, you've mixed and matched, you know, seafood shacks with crudo. Is there something you haven't done you still want to do in terms of food?
3: Oh, geez. I mean, build a backyard smokehouse maybe. No, I mean, I feel like I feel really, really lucky in that regard. I think that for me and food, my goal is going to be to really try to make our pantry awesome. You know, Andrew Arlen and I have always wanted to run restaurants where pretty much everything is done from scratch, except Heinz 57 ketchup, which nobody should mess with. But um, yeah, I think my focus for for the near term is going to be just building that pantry, trying to make our larders more diverse, more homemade and more interesting than than the next guy's.
2: So if I go to Eventide and you start serving homemade ketchup, I'll know you've completely lost your mind. I just Yeah,
3: exactly. Or you can contact the authorities and say that somebody's kidnapped Mike Wiley or he's in a basement somewhere. We need to get him. We need to free him. To yeah.
2: Him. <laughs> Mike, thanks so much for being on Mill Street. It's been a real pleasure.
3: Of course. Thanks for the time, Chris.
2: That was Chef Mike Wiley. His new book is called Eventide, recipes for clam bakes, oysters, lobster rolls, and more from Modern Maine Seafood Shack. Eventide, Mike Wiley's eatery in Portland, Maine, has a real trick up its sleeve. You can order a fried fish sandwich or a burger, but you can also get a salad with nori vinaigrette, a tuna crudo, smoked lobster claws, or a side of kimchi. Fine dining meets the seafood check. And by the way, welcome to the future. It's time to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, tomato herb salad with sumac. Catherine, how are you?
1: I'm fine, thanks. How are you?
2: I'm good, but I'm kind of angry today. Tomatoes drive me crazy. even go to a farmer's market and buy tomatoes, and sometimes they're okay, but a lot of times they don't have a lot of flavor, and they certainly have no flavor when you buy in the supermarket. So it's summertime. I want to make a tomato salad, because why not? And they don't have flavor. So how can I take okay tomatoes and make a tomato salad that I actually want to eat?
1: So, Chris, we actually have a secret ingredient, which is sumac. And you know we use that all the time at Milk Street. It's a Middle Eastern flavoring, and it's actually a dried berry that's ground up and used like a spice. It has a citrusy flavor. It almost has a little bit of a salty bite. And we use it to do double duty here. So we put three teaspoons in a really simple vinaigrette, and then we also use it to finish at the end.
2: So is it just sumac and tomatoes, or are (laughs) we going to add something else to this recipe? It's not
1: quite that simple, Chris. We also have a lemony, garlicky vinaigrette. And we're also going to use another technique, one that we love at the Milk Street Cooking School, and that is mellowing out our alliums. So we're going to throw our onions in lemon juice to take the bite out, and we're actually going to cook our garlic in a little boiling water and then make it into a paste. So the vinaigrette's flavorful, but it doesn't have too much of that bite.
2: And we finish with lots of herbs, I hope.
1: As always, Chris, we're going to add dill and parsley and mint, and if you want, you can even add a little feta at the end.
2: So, Catherine, thank you. You've solved my tomato conundrum, which is how to take mediocre tomatoes and turn them into a great salad. I guess I have to be in a good mood for the rest of the day.
1: We expect nothing but smiles, Chris. For the recipe for tomato herb salad with sumac, go to 177milkstreet.com.
2: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman presents his most controversial opinion yet why he thinks grilling is overrated. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife, or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet, made all the difference. Available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while I actually drive up to the Matapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Mowi Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe Salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, m-o-w-i, salmon.us to learn more.
8: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,
2: This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moult and I will answer a few more of your cooking questions.
5: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Jenna. Hi, Jenna. Where are you calling from?
9: El Paso, Texas.
5: How can we help you today?
9: Well, I had kind of a question. I love food, and um, unfortunately, I have a food intolerance to onions. So a lot of things that are in there, like I love salsas, I love Italian food, and a lot of even soups and things like that, they have like a, what's called the mirepaw or the Holy Trinity.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: It
9: involves onions. So I wanted to see, do you all have a suggestion of what we could substitute for onions?
5: Wow. Are you allergic to other alliums as well or just onions, onions?
9: Pretty much all. I think the only thing I can handle is maybe a little bit of onion powder. Garlic. Garlic, no, actually I can do. Oh, that's good. and Shh. stuff, I can't do.
5: Well, it sort of depends on like in salsa... I'd say just leave it out. I can't think of anything that would work there. But in terms of like what onions do for stews and soups, you know, when you start by sauteing the onion and then adding everything else, what happens is onions have sulfur compounds. It's the same thing that makes us cry, also gives them great depth of flavor. When you cook them low and slow, you release those sulfuric compounds, and uh, it's a good thing. So that's what you're going to be missing in soups and stews. There is a spice uh, that's used in Central Asia called... You have to
2: pronounce it now. Go ahead.
5: I know. I know. Asafoetida. It's spelled A-S-A-F-O-E-T-I-D-A. And it's often used as a substitute, recommended as a substitute for onions and garlic. It has uh, the same sort of organic sulfur aroma and behaves the same way. It doesn't smell great, but boy, does it taste wonderful, and do what you want it to do. So, Chris, do you have anything to add? No, there's nothing.
2: The I mean, people suggest radishes and everything else, and that's just a complete waste of time. Yeah. I think this is by far the best solution. Yeah, and it might be yeah. fun.
5: It's a new ingredient for you. And as I said, just get past the smell and cook with it, and I think you're going to love it.
2: We feel good about this one.
5: We do. We hope yeah. you do, too, Jenna. <laughs> yeah,
2: this would actually well, work. Yeah.
5: yeah. And
9: I would hope to hopefully see more episodes, I guess, that would maybe offer recipes that use that spice, and substitute of, and maybe that way it can encourage more people, and that way it will be more available in shops.
2: <laughs> well put. We should come up with a simple, you know, for one medium onion, you could use a teaspoon of, Yeah. and we should figure that out. Yeah. That's well, good you, idea. Okay.
5: you went Milk Street. Go ahead. Yeah, we'll yeah. do it. All right,
9: yeah. Jenna. Definitely, I appreciate it. Thank you so much Thanks, thanks for your Jenna. Help. Bye. Bye-bye.
2: This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a culinary question, give us a ring. 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
9: Yes, this is Colin DT.
2: How can we help you?
9: I saw this beef jerky recipe online and I would like to replicate it, but I just noticed that there are a few things that I might not be able to implement, let's say, some of the crude methods that I noticed were being used, and I might be able to use some slightly more modern techniques. Okay. And especially if I was trying to do this for public consumption, maybe at a farmer's market.
2: If you're going to sell this commercially at a market, you're going to have to be certified, the health department. So you're going to need to make sure that you have a kitchen and a place to prepare the food that you have a health inspector come by and give you a license. That in mind, and if you're going to do this commercially, even on a small scale, you definitely want a slicer, the kind of things you'd see at a deli. If you do it with a knife, you'd have to freeze the meat for half an hour to an hour, depending on how big the piece of meat is. But that's really hard to do. You can buy them used for a few hundred bucks, and that's what I would do. Because those things are built like a tank, and those will last forever.
9: Okay, and um, does it really matter for like a beef jerky product how the meat is cut, whether it's cut with the grain?
2: With the grain, it means that that thin slice of meat will hold together nicely? It will be very chewy, which is what
5: you're looking for in jerky. Because when you cut against the grain, you're cutting all the fibers so that it will be more tender, which is something you want when you're eating a steak.
9: Okay, so typically that would be with the grain. Yes. Yeah. All right, so my next question then is, I don't know if there's a big difference between drying meat under the sun and using a dehydrator. Maybe
2: Well, if you have a health inspector show up and you're drying the meat outside under out the sun, I don't think you're gonna get I don't a, think you're gonna a permit that yeah. ain't gonna happen. You're gonna need to get dehydrators. I mean the problem is I've used small ones. The question is if you're doing this commercially, you know, what volume do you want? So you're gonna have to get a much bigger dehydrator if you wanna do this in quantity. But I think the problem with jerky is you're dealing with raw meat, you're marinating it. The first thing I would do is go figure out what the rules and regulations are around this, where you are, and make sure that the investment you'd have to make to do this commercially is not $10,000 or $20,000.
9: And I have one last question. I would like to coat the meat with a mixture of seasoning and a peanut butter paste. And the issue I'm having with this is some family members and friends do suffer from peanut allergies. And I was wondering if there is something you could recommend that I could use in place of the peanuts that has sort of the same consistency.
2: Sure, I mean the the obvious thing to use as long as they're not allergic of course is tahini, which is sesame seed, or the classic Middle Eastern I think that's
5: a brilliant idea. Paste. Wow. I know. I Dear never said that to you. Sarah
2: said brilliant. Yeah, you, tahini would be great, but just make sure, you know, obviously they don't have a full nut allergy. Yeah. But that's what I would okay. use. And I okay. think it would actually taste better. It's a more interesting okay. complex flavor.
5: Tala, thank you so much for calling. Hopefully that's helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.
2: This is Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners.
9: Hi, my name is Martina Webb from Sterling Heights, Michigan, and here's my tip. When you have a recipe that calls for an ingredient that needs to be squeezed dry, such as shredded zucchini or thawed frozen spinach, don't reach for a kitchen towel to do the job. Instead, reach for your potato ricer. One strong squeeze, and you will very efficiently remove all the extra moisture.
2: If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash tips. Next up, it's regular contributor and troublemaker Dan Pashman. Dan, what are you thinking
0: about this week? Well, Chris, I got a bit of a bee in my bonnet this week. Hmm. I am frustrated, I will tell you, because, you know, this is the time of year when everybody's grilling, but I think grilling has gotten out of control. I am tired of all these social media posts. Did you know you could grill chocolate chip cookies? You can grill watermelon. You can grill pizza. I mean, not every food is better grilled, okay? I'm here to say, Chris, that we are grilling too many foods.
2: Okay, yeah, this is this is positively un-American. So I, I'm going to let you.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: you're in an island
0: by yourself on this one, pal. <laughs> Look, I mean, I love grilling. It's very fun and pleasurable, but um, I think there's a fetishization that is happening with grilling. And as soon as you say you can, did you know you can grill X? It gets a bunch of clicks on the internets. And the kids go crazy for it. And so people keep creating these recipes. But why is it better? That's really my point. Like, a lot of these foods, sure, I guess char marks look nice. But a a grill has a limited amount of surface area. If you start trying to grill 10 different things for a meal, all of a sudden you're spending hours laboring over this hot, flaming grill. That's not a fun place to be. And a lot of times I think the results are like, much. you know, like a grill is not, it's it's pleasurable to cook on, but you don't have a whole lot of control over the temperature. It's not a very precise device, so I think there's a lot of romanticism around grilling. Oh boy, you're in you're in just <laughs> you
2: you are in so much trouble. First of all, grill pizza. I make grilled pizza all the time. It is so much better than oven pizza because it gets it cooks in about two or three minutes. It's very hot. It bubbles up. It's it's just fabulous. Secondly, you don't have to clean up inside. That's the whole point, right? I mean, you cook on a grill and it's done. There's no pots to clean. There's no stove to clean. So that's that's a number two. And number three, there is a fair amount of control. I mean, if you have a gas you know grill, which I know some people don't like, but there's quite a lot of control because you have three or four burners, depending, and uh, you can set it up any way you like. So I don't know, three strikes,
0: you're out. (laughs) Does does that make sense here I mean, look, I will grant you the point about the dishes. That is a very good point. I'll give you that one. Yeah. But I I, I guess what I object to is that it feels like a gimmick, a culinary gimmick created for the social media age because it's the kind of thing that that seems new and different and people will click on it. And I, I just think like, look, cooking over an open fire is the oldest type of cooking. If there's a food that is best cooked over an open fire, I think we would have discovered it by now. We don't need all the recipe testers of the internet to go out and try to grill outlandish things so that they can get more clicks. That is really my frustration. Like grilled corn. Like I feel like grilled corn is a big pain, and uh, oftentimes it, it gets yes. overcooked and the the kernels all shrivel. We're letting form come over function because these the char marks often are a sign of something not being cooked as well as it could have been cooked.
2: Well, you got me on that one because the years ago, uh, we used to do
0: these pig roasts in
2: August in Vermont. And I, I was in charge one year of, of the, actually it was a heifer that we cooked, but it was a beef roast. But I did the corn and I decided to do it over the coals. Everyone hated it. And, and you know why? Because it was dried out. So the following year I boiled it like I should have and everyone loved it. So I, I think grilled corn unless you do it just right. You have to soak it, uh, leave one of the layers of the leaves on, on it when you do it. it. It can be good, but it is pretty dicey, I agree.
0: All right, see, we're, we're, we're coming to a middle ground. Have you ever tried cooler corn? What's cooler corn? Uh, cooler corn is great when you're, when you're hosting a barbecue. You shuck the corn, you put it into a cooler, you fill the cooler with boiling water just enough to cover the corn. You don't need to fill it at the top close the cooler, let it sit for 30 minutes, and then drain out the hot water from the tap on the bottom. And the, the corn is cooked. And if you keep the cooler closed, the corn will stay warm. So you can do it in advance. And um, you can do a whole bunch at once. And it takes you about 10 minutes. OK, so I, I'm, I'm playing psychiatrist now. There is something that's bothering you.
2: You saw a social media post that offered to grill something you thought was
0: insane and upsetting. So what what was the thing that really set you off? I'm glad you brought this up, Chris. <laughs> I know this is deep. I don't know that it was something that I saw, but I think you're probably right, that I have been scarred by the experience of trying to grill too many things. And it's it's very stressful. And I usually end up burning something. And I think it left its own sort of char mark on my soul. So in other words, fear of public failure and a hot day in front of a grill is what it is.
2: Well, the only thing I would say in closing is... One of the great things about a grill is you can cook, let's say, a thin piece of meat quickly over high heat. And then as the fire dies down a little bit, you can take a whole bunch of vegetables, which you don't have to serve right away, and cook them on the grill. And then you have them for the rest of the week. So I, I, I like the, what you do after the initial cooking. You have all that heat. And if you use it intelligently, actually, it's a very economical way of getting a lot of food cooked at
0: once. I can see that. I'll I'll, I'll grant you that. I I just think, I think for me, what I've decided is that when I'm grilling, I want to grill one thing. Grill one thing, grill it really well, make it just right. And don't try to grill your entire meal, appetizer, entree, and dessert because you'll drive yourself crazy.
2: Well, actually, I did once grill a cake. Oh, no. <laughs> I was in a hurricane on the Cape. There was no power. Way to bury the lead, Chris. No, I, and I, uh, I I got a nice low fire, and I had a pretty successful— it was a blueberry buckle, actually, but uh, turned out okay. Well, Dan Pashman, maybe your bumper sticker should be grill one thing. Uh, that's pretty good. All right. I'll go, I appreciate I'll, it, Chris. I'll go with
0: uh, I'll, I'll keep an eye out in the mail for that bumper sticker. And take care. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Take it easy.
2: That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sparkful Food Podcast. You know, I have a question about the Weber grill. I do know that historically it was made for the bottom half of a buoy. I know that the inventor, George Stevens, drilled holes in the top to improve the airflow. So far, so good. But what I don't understand is why the distance between the grate and the grill is fixed. Yeah, you can pile up coals or make a two-level fire, even put bricks under the grate, but you still can't raise or lower the cooking surface. The Mini Cooper, by comparison, has 16 different models, 11 colors, 12 well designs, 7 seat coverings, and 5 trim options. You get the idea. So maybe Weber knows something, the rest of us just don't. Keep it simple. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, visit us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for
1: listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison. Co executive producer Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer Jackie Nowak. Production assistant Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Bernal-Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. ¶¶